This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We exist, we eat, drink, breathe. We watch and listen. We plan things through, such as when she steps out of the elevator, then I'll step in. But a robot could do a lot of that. What's different is that we watch ourselves as we do these things. We think about ourselves and everything around us. We feel waves of different emotions as we move through our lives. And we call that consciousness. So central to our existence, and yet nobody really knows what consciousness actually is. Christoph Koch is a neuroscientist who has devoted his career to looking for traces or footprints of consciousness in the folds of the brain. David Chalmers is a philosopher. He too has devoted his life to figuring out what consciousness is. Well, the two of them have a great story to tell about their quest. It involves expensive wine, some good laughs, and a lot of big questions. And Christoph Koch joins me now from Seattle. He's with the Allen Institute for Brain Science and is chief scientist at Tiny Blue Dot Foundation. Christoph, welcome. Thank you, uh, Magna. Also joining us now is David Chalmers. He's a professor of philosophy and neural science and co-director of New York University's Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness and author of Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. David, welcome to you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I wonder if you could both first take us back to, what, 1988, and uh, was it a late-night conversation in a bar that gave rise to a very peculiar bet, David? What was happening that night? Yeah, I guess it was 1998, uh, pretty much 25 years ago. We were both attending a conference the very the second conference of the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness, a group which had been gotten together consisting of neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, trying to understand consciousness. And the focus of this meeting was the neural correlates of consciousness. That is, the uh, the areas of the brain which are active when you're when you have a conscious subjective experience that feels like something from uh, from the inside. And Christoph, maybe eight years previously, around 1990, along with Francis Crick, had articulated the search for neural correlates of consciousness as the centerpiece, maybe, of a growing scientific attack on consciousness to try and understand it, find out which bits of the brain are active when you feel pain, when you see something red, when you think of a thought about your mother. And at this meeting, he was very optimistic about it. So uh, we had just been discussing the neural correlates of consciousness. He says, I think we're going to find the neural correlates of consciousness within 25 years. I said, 
Ah, not so fast. I think we'll, we may well discover neural correlates of consciousness eventually, but I think it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a tough problem. It's going to take <laughs> longer than that. So we ended yeah. up making a bet. Well, Christoph, can I just ask you, um, it was fascinating to me to see that you had uh, uh, worked with with Crick, right? So because the the discovery of the double helix of DNA really unlocked our understanding of so much uh, about life. So per- perhaps is that what had given you the, the confidence that um, science would eventually similarly unlock the secrets of consciousness? Well, fundamentally, I thought as a scientist, the central aspect of our lives, as you pointed out in your introduction, are our conscious experience of the world. The only way I know, in fact, that I exist is because I have feelings, I have experiences. Right? This is these, the central assertion of René Descartes' cogito ergo sum. And so I felt strongly, together with, with Francis Crick, when we articulated this program, science should ultimately be able to nail this program. We should be able to understand, like we've understood so many as, other aspects of our life and the universe, science should be able to attack and solve and ultimately explain the problem of, of consciousness. Um, and so we articulated this program just to take us back all previous cultures and even in, in our own culture here in the West until, you know, roughly the 16th century, we thought the heart is the organ of consciousness, right? So you love with all your hearts, right? You give your sweethearts heart-shaped chocolates for Valentine's Day, never brain-shaped chocolates. But we do know, we have learned it's a brain, but it's not the entire brain that's the organ of consciousness. For instance, you can lose your spinal cord and you're quadriplegic, but you're still conscious. You can lose many bits and pieces of the brain, in fact, and you have all sorts of problems, but consciousness might not be impaired. And so the question is, what are the actors? What are the cellular actors? We know the brain consists, like any other organs, out of you know gazillions of, of cells. In this case, they're called nerve cells or neurons. What specific neurons in what specific location in the brain are necessary for me to hear or to see or to love or to fear. Uh-huh. Okay. And you thought that these uh, questions would be answered in 25 years? Well, yeah, you know, I was young. I was, I just started, uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, I became a, a young assistant professor at, um, at Caltech, at the, at the California Institute of Technology. And you, ha- you have belief in your methods, in yourself. You know, it's just like you, st- you do a startup, right? Of course you believe you're going to make it. Of course you go- you're going to believe you're going to be hugely successful because this is what motivates you day in, day out to do all the hard sciences and recruit students and, and look for funding in order to in order to make progress so you have to believe in yourself and i do believe and i still believe we'll solve this problem mm. well again I, th- I just think of the rapid advance we made since watson and crick did describe you know that double helix to from there Correct. to you know uh, deciphering the human genome so your your ambition and optimism i i actually is completely was completely warranted at the time but david were, I mean, you made this bet with Christoph, so were you similarly, I guess you weren't as uh, optimistic as he was about solving this problem. Yeah, I am fundamentally optimistic about a solution, but I think it's going to take a while. I mean, the first thing I think to get clear on is that this bet on the neural correlates of consciousness didn't resolve solving the whole problem of consciousness. 
why does do physical processes in the brain give you subjective experiences at all? Why doesn't all, all this go on without consciousness? That's what in the business we call the hard problem of consciousness. Why is there consciousness? Why does it even exist in the first place? That, I suspect, even Christoph thought would take longer than 25 years. This yes. bet was about a slightly more limited topic, which is about correlations between the brain and consciousness. Let's take it for granted that consciousness exists. What does it go along with in the brain? What bits of the brain are active when you're conscious? And I think both Christoph and I thought this is a problem that could, in principle, be resolved even without solving the philosophical mind-body problem, without giving a full explanation of consciousness. So the correlation project, what Christoph and Francis Crick called the search for neural correlates of consciousness, I, I think we both saw as a goal which is visible somewhere in the distance. But maybe Christoph saw it as, as closer. He was very mm. optimistic and ambitious and thought maybe we could get there in 25 years. My own view was the brain is so complicated, consciousness is so complicated, that this question is going to be, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be complicated. Yeah. It's unlikely we'll get there within 25 years. If we did get there in 25 years, then great. But I was quite happy to put my uh, my money or my wine, in this case, on the other <laughs> side of the bed. Yeah, so can we talk a little bit about how you decided what was on the line, Christoph? in terms of what would be won or lost in this bet? Um, yeah, we, uh, no, we just agreed on a case of good wine. We did not specify the quality of the wine. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so so that was 1998. You know, suddenly it occurs to me, we'll, we'll get to that hard question that you both talked about a little mm -hmm. bit later in the show, but I had made an error earlier in saying 1988, and I thought to myself, as um, you graciously offered the correction, that um, the hard problem is very in hard indeed to solve because one aspect of at least of my consciousness is uh, sensing that uh, my my interpretation of the passage of time is changing, that I have a hard time believing that 1998 was uh, as far back as 25 years ago. My mind wants it to be uh, uh, a much longer span of time. Um, but so who won? Christoph, who won the bet? Well, so this event uh, uh, um, a couple of weeks ago in New York coincided with the with the release, the first uh, press release of a large international consortium of which Dave and I were also a member, called an adversarial collaboration that was test that was searching, questing for these neural correlates of consciousness by pitting two of the dominant theories of consciousness against each other. And these theories make different predictions about where in the brain these neural correlates are and the timing of these, of these neural correlates. And this involves, you know, an, a 12 labs in different continents that all agreed on a common protocol and uh, uh, functional brain imaging and EEG recording and magnetic field recordings in 250 volunteers to look at things and sometimes they see him and sometimes they don't see him or sometimes they pay attention to them, sometimes they don't, and and thereby titrate out uh, these footprints in, in the brain. And at this meeting, they announced the results. Um, and so we 
we took that as a great opportunity. Well, is there, you know, if, if we look at these results, is there unanimity? Does everyone agree this is the neural college of consciousness? And that was not the case at this meeting. We disagree about the exact timing of it and exactly where they are. So, you know, clearly the field has not achieved, um, has not converged on a, on a single answer. Ah, so you had to give up the case of wine. So, yes, I graciously agreed <laughs> to Dave and shook hand and handed him over a wooden box with uh, six bottles of uh, good wine. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about where consciousness lies in the brain. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're joined by Christoph Koch. He's with us from Seattle. He's uh, at the Allen Institute for Brain Science and chief scientist at Tiny Do Blue Dot Foundation. And David Chalmers joins us as well. He's a professor of philosophy and neural science and co-director of New York University's Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness. And we're talking about how these two thinkers from the world of neuroscience and the world of philosophy came together to try, with a group of others, to begin to answer the question of where does consciousness, consciousness lie in the brain? Now, David, can I ask you, I want to go back to that, that hard question mm-hmm. issue. Um, because, you know, when you said that, you know, things like when we feel pain, when we think about our mothers, when we see, you know, something move, that these may all be indicators of consciousness. Now, I, I, I step back and I, and I think, okay, well, in any scientific experiment, we have to lay out our, our hypothesis and our presumptions. And you said, you said earlier that one big presumption that you were going to make was that consciousness exists. That, that seems to be a, a huge presumption because these, uh, these neural correlates about, say, feeling pain, I mean, how can we say that those are correlates of consciousness versus simply just our brains processing physical information from the outside world and returning them as experiences that we're having. Yeah, consciousness existing, I think, is a kind of fundamental datum of our existence. We wake up, we experience the world, we see colors and shapes, we hear voices, we feel emotions, we think thoughts. All of these are directly experienced. I mean, Rene Descartes, 
back in the back in the day said, you know, um, I think, therefore I am. And I think he really meant I am conscious, therefore I am. Consciousness is the one thing we're sure about. I think what we're not sure about is how it connects to processes in the brain and how it is that processes in the brain actually give you subjective experience in the first place. Mm. That's what we call the uh, the hard problem of consciousness. Actually, Christoph and I first met at a conference in 1994, an early scientific conference on consciousness, where he was talking about the project of neural correlates of consciousness. And I said, well, okay, that's well and good, but correlation doesn't necessarily give us explanation. Yeah, merely of course. having a story about these processes in the brain might help to tell us how we respond to stimuli and so on. But it doesn't really answer the fundamental question of why it, why are we conscious at all in the first place? How do physical processes in the brain somehow give rise to this magical experience of consciousness? Okay. Well, so maybe I should just ask the fundamental question of both of you. And, and David, I'm going to stick with you for a moment. From your perspective um, as a philosopher who's also um, knowledgeable about neuroscience, I mean, we keep referring to Descartes about, I think, therefore I am. But how would you define what consciousness actually is? Yeah, it's not easy. But I there are a couple of simple definitions I like. The most simple definition is simply subjective experience. It's any experience that feels like something from the inside. So something as simple as seeing a red apple in front of you, you have a subjective experience of this. If you like inside the inner movie of the mind, you hear your own voice, that's part of the inner movie of the mind. It's a multi-track movie, you feel pain, you feel emotions, you think about your, your hometown, all of these are states of subjective experience. There's something it's like, there's something it feels like, for us to go through these states. And it's that subjective experience, which I think is really at the heart of consciousness. That's certainly the most mysterious aspect of consciousness, the most familiar thing in the world, but also the most mysterious. Mm. Okay, so Christoph, then from your perspective in neuroscience, how would you define what consciousness is? As, uh, as Dave did, it feels like something to be in love. It feels like something to hear these voices right now in my, in my head. Look, it's the only way you know that you exist, Magna. If you go in a deep sleep, uh, tonight you're going to go to sleep, and at certain parts of the night you'll be in a deep sleep. We can see that because your brain will, there will be these slow waves crisscrossing your brain, okay? At that point, you do not exist for yourself. Magna is not there. Magna doesn't exist for yourself. Of course, your body still exists, your brain still exists, but you don't exist for yourself. When you're in a coma, right? Some patients are in a coma or when you're um, anesthetized, it doesn't feel like anything anymore. So that's a difference. It's a difference between life, between, you know, having any experience, having any sensation and having no uh, sensation. And the challenge has been, that if you look at the foundational equation of physics, so you look at general relativity or, or quantum mechanics, there's no consciousness there. You look at the periodic table of the elements, there's no consciousness there. You look at the genes, there's no consciousness there. Yet here we wake up, here we are in a world having, seeing and hearing and loving and fearing. So 
how does consciousness get there? So that's what, what Dave calls a hard problem. Whether it uh -huh. always remains hard is, is an open question, but surely it's a conceptually very difficult problem. So that's why we focus yeah. on the on the easier problem, where the footprints of, of this, where the correlates, the bits and pieces that correlates with me right now feeling in love and 10 seconds later realizing that I'm late for an appointment. Where are they? Mm. Mm. Well, so uh, again, dis we'll discuss the neural correlates more, but <laughs> I suppose it's inevitable that I'm just intrinsically fascinated by the big question of what is consciousness. Because it is. Christoph, when you when you mentioned uh, when you mentioned in sleep, I'm not aware of myself. Uh, I mean, I would Deep push sleep. back gently in deep sleep. Okay, so not REM sleep or dream state because dream That's state. That's correct. I, no. I, I, okay. Entirely correct. In dream state, you're conscious. It's not the same waking consciousness. So, for example, typically you don't realize you're, you're dreaming, right? Typically yourself is muted, right? Things, it's more like you're in this movie and things are happening, but you're typically not the actor or the, the, the director of your, of your dream, right? That happens in these, mo in these dreams called lucid dreams. So dreaming is clearly a state of consciousness. But then there are many states in between when you're not conscious, when you're in deep sleep. I see. Okay, good. Because I just wanted to check that because sometimes my most vivid subjective experiences or a person's most vivid subjective experiences come exactly in that dream state. And, and David, exactly, and you can't tell yeah. the difference between, you know, dreaming and real life. It feels like that's what life is. It's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, taking a, a, another look at the idea of this, of consciousness being the subjective experience, um, would that mean that consciousness the experience of consciousness is well, uh, lies well beyond just the the human realm that that all, any manner of animals might be also similarly conscious i think that consciousness goes well beyond the human realm i mean this is a matter of controversy i mean descartes rene descartes back in the 17th century thought that consciousness was for humans only and that even his uh, his dog was not uh, was not conscious. These days, I think there's a very strong scientific consensus that at least many non-human animals are conscious. I think you know most people would say that most, all, probably all mammals are conscious. Probably all, probably all birds. Now there's a debate about you know a fish conscious or insects conscious. None of this is to say that they would think or even that they are con that they're self-conscious. Self-consciousness is a lot more is a lot more complex maybe that's humans and some other animals but basic subjective experience of the world like feeling pain like seeing colors i think most scientists and philosophers these days think there's a fair amount of evidence that at least a number of animals have subjective experience and then of course we can go on to ask questions does it go beyond that could a could a artificial intelligence system for example have subjective experience. And these questions are becoming very relevant right now. Mm. I think this is a problem of measurement, right? We we can't fully know what a, I mean, there's been, there's been treaties written on this about like, how does a bat actually feel? Because we can't mm -hmm. know the experience of a bat, right? Um, there's no way, there's no way for us to measure it. Maybe someday there, there will be. Um, In philosophy, but, this gets called the problem of other minds. How can you ever know that any other system has a mind or is conscious. I'm totally confident that I am conscious. Can I know for sure about you, Megna, or you, 
Christoph, I believe you're conscious because you're, you know, you're like me and I'm conscious, but we don't know for sure. Once you go to animals or machines, this problem gets all gets that much harder. I've, I've often thought it'd be so much easier if we had a consciousness meter, we could just point at a system to see, to measure its consciousness. But that's precisely what we don't have because consciousness is private and subjective. Yeah, But, we're know, but it, some people are trying to develop such a conscious meter. It's true. With the help of neuroscience, maybe we could, uh, once we know the neural correlates of consciousness, maybe we could use those neural correlates as a guide to consciousness. On the other hand, the fact that consciousness is hard to measure is one of the things that makes it quite difficult to find the neural correlates of consciousness in the first place. Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. Now, you know, you, David, when you said um, you believe that I am conscious, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm in Oregon right now. You're in New York State. Christoph is in uh, Washington State, so we can't actually see each other. And David, the, your belief that I am conscious rests on the trust that you have in my in my in the On Point team, who told you that there's this person named Megna who's going to be hosting the program. Even though you can't see me, all you can do is hear me, which just got me. You talked about machines, right? We're, we're rapidly entering the 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 stage of human evolution where. A machine may be talking to you, um, but it's getting harder and harder to distinguish whether or not that's a conscious human uh, or a, an artificial intelligence. It's a little disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah, I've only heard your voice come to think about it, and I've you know read about you and so on. But um, yeah, for all I know, this is actually a large language model, you know, chat GPT in the crowd who... They say, "Oh, Megna wasn't available today. Let's get a uh, let's get a, a a language model trained on everything Megna has said, and the language model will probably be able to fake it well enough." So, you know, I think the technology may not quite be there for that, but in probably in three or four years, it might be, and that really raises the question. Now, Christoph, I've actually seen in the flesh and talked to, and so on. So, I have a bit more <laughs> evidence of that, but. Uh, you know, who's to say, maybe some false memories got implanted. Maybe all this is a giant virtual reality. Maybe I'm the only conscious being in existence. These are old philosophical thrillers, you know, to, to think about. The science tends to set them aside by assuming that at the very least, all humans are conscious. But, you know, mm. if you really wanted to, to raise trouble, Descartes would probably say, how do you know? Yeah. Well, as far as I can tell, we have not yet entered the matrix and I can guarantee everyone that I am a, you know, living flesh and blood human and not a bot just yet. Um, but Christoph, could you describe, um, I read about some recent, relatively recent um, experiments that you and a team that you brought together called the Cogitate Consortium did in order to start, um, you know, collecting some data to answer this question about the neural correlates of consciousness. Can you describe some of the experiments you did? Sure, they are relatively straightforward. So you have uh, volunteers that lie either inside a magnetic scanner, so we can pick up your brain's hemodynamic response, uh, the, the, the bits and pieces of your brain that are most active because they, 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 we can track that in the blood flow of those regions of the brain. Or we had volunteers wear EG nets so we can track the electrical activity. Or they were inside an MEG device that tracks the magnetic fields associated with, uh, with thinking or with seeing. Or in some cases, these were um, uh, patients that had volunteered for these experiments. And these patients 
had uh, electrodes implanted into their heads to monitor um, epileptic seizures. You know, you if you have certain types of epileptic seizures in order to track where they originate and can you maybe t uh, surgically remove them, they have these electrodes implanted. And then we had all these people uh, look at simple stimuli, face that was clearly present, or an object like a toaster or a telephone, or letters or some other simple symbols. And so, uh, sometimes they had to push a button because they, you know, and, and they were asked to push a button when a particular face appeared or a particular object appeared, but not when, when, when there were other distracting faces. And so this is sort of a fairly standard experiment. What makes this different is a very large number of subjects involved, uh, 250. Most experiments have like 10 or 12 subjects, and then people come to some conclusion based on 10 or 12 subjects. We call those often statistically underpowered. They don't have enough statistical power in order to really come to a, a, a conclusion with high confidence. The other thing that this involved, all these different techniques doing uh, very, very similar protocols so, so that we can compare the EG, the electrical response with a magnetic response, with the response inside the, inside the magnetic uh, scanner. Uh, so that was sort of the nature of this, uh, of this um, experiment. The other thing that was unique about it, it involved two, as I mentioned, these two dominant theories of consciousness, scientific theories of consciousness. On the one hand, there's integrated information theory of consciousness, abbreviated often as IIT, integrated information. On the other hand, there's a theory called global neuronal workspace theory. And they're quite different. IIT sort of stresses that consciousness is very rich, that, you know, that if you look at the world, there's sort of conscious content everywhere. While, while um, global neuronal workspace theory stresses sort of it's more related to thinking and, and, and sort of making a high-level summary, it's more cognitive theory. So it's a little bit like IIT says the world is like a painting of Peter Bruegel, where you see, you know, these rich peasant scenes and you can see myriad of details, the way they're dressed, the way the people are looking at each other, while Global neuronal workspace theory says consciousness is more like the label you might see at a at a museum. You know, Flemish painter, 16th century peasant wedding, people you know making out and and drinking, and these theories came to different conclusions about where the NCC is. IIT says it's in the in the back part of the cerebral cortex, the outermost layer of the brain while global neuronal workspace says, no, it's really in the front of the brain, the front of mm -hmm. the brain that's most expanded in us compared to other animals. And, and so that's one way these theories distinguish themselves. Is it in the back or is it in the front? And then there are some I other see. differences about the timing of, this, um, um, of these uh, signals with respect to how long, when I'm conscious of something for 10 seconds, one theory says, well, there should be a footprint for 10 seconds. The other theory says, no, it's really only early on when you first become conscious that you send out this broadcast to everyone in the brain and you're only going to pick up this, this broadcast at the beginning of, con of, of, of seeing something or when it disappears at the end. So this is how we try to distinguish the two theories in terms of their predictions. Okay. Well, we have to take a quick break and we'll be right back talking more about the search for where consciousness might lie in the brain. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Christoph Koch is with us. He's a scientist at the Allen Institute for Brain Science and chief scientist at Tiny Blue Dot Foundation. He's at, in Seattle, Washington. And David Chalmers is with us. He's a professor of philosophy and neuroscience and co-director of New York University Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. And he's joining us from Yorktown Heights, New York. Uh, and David, I, I would say that one of the greatest delights of science is that um, is that well-designed experiments asking, uh, you know, intelligent questions only beget more questions. <laughs> so the, the endless pursuit of knowledge continues. Um, and listening to how Christoph was describing um, the, the experiments in the previous segment about seeing, like, where would the signals of consciousness come from, from the prefrontal cortex in the front or in, or instead in the back of the brain. And it looks like the uh, experiment revealed it may be, the results were inconclusive, right? It made me wonder. I don't ever want to say any scientific pursuit is a folly, but is this pursuit one that's destined to never come up with a, uh, a clear answer? Because, I mean, we're coming at this from the perspective that science being objective can find an answer to the question of consciousness. But we've also defined consciousness as a subjective experience. So how can the twain ever meet? Yeah, I mean, I am an enthusiast about the science of consciousness. I do think it's something, consciousness is something we can study scientifically, but it does pose many unique challenges. You know, one of them is the fact that it's difficult to measure directly in other systems. We know about consciousness in ourselves, but how do we measure it in another system? Uh, yeah, the fact that it's it's so subjective by its nature. But that said, I think, you know, we tend in the science of consciousness to at least adopt the working assumption that, for example, when someone says they're having a conscious experience, then they are conscious of what they say they're conscious of, at least if there's no reason to say otherwise. And that allows us to leverage, you know, verbal reports. We can do experiments where we ask people what they see and use that as a guide to their, uh, to what they're conscious of. But still many philosophical issues arise. And this is an area where scientific and philosophical issues are entangled all the way through. I think when Christoph and Francis first started approaching this in 1990, around 1990, they said, now we can cut through all of that philosophy and just do the science. I think what we're now 
discovering, even with some of the results of these adversarial collaborations, is that there's a lot of philosophical assumptions intertwined with your uh, with your scientific results. So, for example, the difference between integrated information theory and global workspace theory, which were tested in these experiments, is I think partly a philosophical a philosophical difference between two different conceptions of consciousness. One where consciousness is very rich, very sensory, like a picture, as Christoph was saying, and the other where consciousness is very sparse, much more tied to thinking than tied to uh, to sensation and so on. And it turns out to be quite difficult to uh, to test this philosophical difference experimentally. So one thing that I mean, one thing I'd like about these adversarial collaborations, the experiments that were done, is that each of the theorists was forced in advance, you know, to make certain predictions about what the results would be, and to say if if this prediction doesn't come out, then my theory is potentially falsified or at least challenged. One thing we actually, it's interesting now we've actually seen the results. Um, you might say, okay, we're going to get some results. Some theorists on both sides' predictions were in fact challenged. They said uh, we would find certain activity in prefrontal cortex and we didn't find that. What we Interestingly though, what we now find is that the theorists say on the global workspace theorists is, oh, maybe we weren't actually conscious of that stimulus after all. Yes, it was in front of you, but maybe people weren't paying attention to it, so maybe they didn't see it consciously. And to some extent, that reflects this philosophical difference between two very different approaches to consciousness, one where it's very rich, one where it's very sparse. So even interpreting the scientific results, I think, takes some philosophical thinking. Oh, that's interesting. That's a twist. So, Christoph, then, can the, can um, experiments around consciousness ever be scientifically conclusive? Because a once a once a you know a, a hypothesis has been tested and either proven or rejected, it has to be reproducible in order for science to accept it. But if David's saying that even the the interpretation of the experiment's results are subjective to philosophical considerations. Can those results uh, be reproducible in the in the conventional scientific sense? Yes. So firstly, let's not be defeatist. There have been many problems in the history <laughs> of science that, you know, where people argued with good reason at the time that they would never be solved, right? Like, we will never know what stars are made out of. Well, we know what stars are made out of. We shall never understand life. We shall never understand the difference between life, living and non-living matter. Well, we understand that, right? So there are many things that people previously had argued for good reasons we, we couldn't solve, we have understood, right? So let's not sort of a priori assume that consciousness somehow is beyond the bane of sort of human ingenuity, okay? And I should Being, say, I totally uh, agree with, with Christoph about this. I think the problems are hard, but we can solve them eventually. Good. Okay, so we got that. B, yeah. um, they are reproducible in the sense that if we now take 250 different people, okay, we do the same experiment, the chances are very, very high, you know, 99% plus, that they will find this, that they will have the same finding. That would still leave open the question that Dave, that Dave just raised, well, you know, how do we know in this particular instance that they were conscious or not conscious? But um, 
but but these experiments are reproducible, and they will also have Magna uh, a lot of practice. And I mean, tracking down these these colleagues is not just some esoteric pursuit of philosophers or, or science geek. It will have practical problem, practical consequences. Like in patients, there are thousands of patients today on the planet in ICUs or in in homes where we don't know whether they're conscious or not. Terry Schiavo, maybe a name that, that you mm, might recall yes. from 20 years ago, when, when these patients are in a persistent vegetative state and probably 20% of these patients, where people estimate, actually do are conscious, but they're unable to signal it because they are so severely injured, okay? Well, if we have the neural college of consciousness, we could, we could, you know, we could build this conscious meter that people are trying to do and say, okay, this patient is actually conscious. They're, lo they're inside their, their brain. Someone is there compared to most of these patients where there's no one home anymore. Once we have it, we can track it. When does it first begin? Is it in the second trimester? You know, as some people argue of, um, of a fetus, or does consciousness start? You know, when 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 the when you're just born, right? We can track it on the assumption that it's similar in us between us and let's say other mammals because the brains are very similar. We can track it in a dog or in a monkey or in a great ape or in orcas, right? So there will be lots and lots of of practical consequences to finding the neural correlates of consciousness. Consciousness, and thereby we can partially validate these experimental findings that are more scientific. We can validate them in clinical, um, um, in the clinic. Yeah. So can I just jump in here for a second, Christoph? Because first of all, I want to uh, uh, agree with both of you that I don't prescribe to scientific defeatism either. But perhaps it's just in my layperson's mind who's getting who's stumbling repeatedly on the same obstacle, and that is. Okay, I hear you when you say that the results of these experiments are indeed reproducible, right? But you also then, I think your next sentence was, it's just that there's a difference of opinion about whether in that particular moment the person was conscious or not. But if there's a difference of opinion in that, that really fundamental um, state that you're even trying to measure, how, how, do, how, how can we, even if the results are, are reproducible, how can we assign any meaning to them more okay. it's a good question so the the question that was posed by these theoreticians right how do we know in this particular trial that the patient is con is that, that the subject is conscious well we can think of another experimental test right right so we we so all of these questions w there will be some way we can test these questions right and okay. and so one ultimately thing we're thinking about too is that um there may be easier aspects of consciousness to study and harder aspects yes. of consciousness. So, for example, consciousness within attention, when you're attending to the stimulus and you can talk about it, that's a case where I think most of us can agree that, okay, the, a human subject will be conscious of the stimulus on that occasion. These harder cases that we're arguing about now is like, what about a stimulus that's in front of the subject, but they're not attending to it? Some people think that could still be conscious. Some people think not. That's hard to get at experimentally. But I think at the same time, we can all focus on the easier cases like consciousness within attention, things you can look at and talk about right now and so on. And at yeah. the very least, try and form a science of those aspects of consciousness. <laughs> So that so that makes a lot of sense. Now I appreciate both of you um, guiding me through that. So so at right now we're in a phase where if we can find sort of subsets of consciousness around which there's there's both scientific and 
if I can put it this way, philosophical consensus about what's actually happening, then we can pursue experiments um, in those subsets. But ah, I don't know, maybe I just keep getting dragged back to the big questions. Because David, it's impossible not to have the mind wander to, you know, again, as we, how do we define consciousness? That some people might say, well, aren't you simply talking about the soul, or am I bringing too much philosophy or religion into into the question? Yeah, I like to, I would prefer to resist equating consciousness with the soul because the soul, I mean, who knows what the soul is, but it comes with many religious connotations. The moment we start talking about the soul, it connects to life after death, for example. The soul is something which might survive our bodily death, maybe created by a creator, maybe it gets reincarnated. Um, it's a wholly non-physical, something totally separate from the brain. I'd be inclined to resist most of those connotations. I don't know that consciousness survives death. Maybe there are non-physical aspects of consciousness, but I think it's got to be going to be at the very least very closely tied to the brain. So I preferred. I think subjective experience for me is a is a datum that we're conscious. The soul to me is a theory. Maybe we have souls that survive our death. Maybe we don't. I don't know uh, that question. So I think of consciousness basically as a scientific fact, but still it is an incredibly challenging scientific fact because consciousness seems so different from everything in the physical world. We've got this program of trying to explain everything in physical terms. Physics explains chemistry, which explains biology, and so on. And then suddenly consciousness seems like somehow an exception to that explanatory order. Our old methods of trying to explain things like say, well, this neuron fires and that causes this behavior just leaves open the question, how does that give you consciousness? So I'd like to think it's a hard problem, but still that doesn't mean we can't solve it scientifically. But it it does... just means it's a new kind of science potentially. But yeah, so it does sound like you're saying though that that you're encouraging us to think about consciousness as a you know, fundamental part of the universe in addition to space, yes. time, yes. mass. It's a feature, yes, it's a feature yeah. of the universe that we find ourselves in. This is a radical view more. that I yeah. think I've always been somewhat sympathetic with, and Christoph has become more sympathetic over the years, that maybe we, in science, you have to take some things as fundamental, space, time, mass, charge, in many basic scientific theories. You don't explain them, they're just fundamental ingredients of the world and you give theories of the laws that involve them. So I'm inclined to think consciousness could end up being fundamental in the way that space, time, mass, and charge are. That doesn't mean you can't have a theory of them. You can still have a theory of space and time, even though they're fundamental. It's just our theories will need to describe the structure of consciousness and articulate the laws that connect it to physical processing. So for if, for example, consciousness depends on certain kinds of information processing that happens in brains, we need to articulate the fundamental laws that say, you know, when you get this kind of information processing, you get this kind of consciousness. We're not there yet, but you know, there's a research project underway. So this is exactly what one of those two theories, integrated information theory, it starts with, with consciousness. So it assumes that consciousness is a fundamental feature of, um, of the universe and of mechanisms like brains or like other physical mechanisms. It says that any mechanism that has sort of complex interaction will feel like something. So 
any mechanism that has a complex interaction will feel like something. The theory okay. says that any that any mechanism that I mean, s s technically speaking, that has intrinsic causal powers upon itself, yes, will feel like something. So it shares some intuition with this ancient philosophical or religious belief called panpsychism, right? That everything is in soul. Maybe not everything, maybe not tables and chairs, but many more syst systems that have complex internal interaction feel like something. That's what at least the implication of uh, integrated information theory is, including uh, big brain animals. They feel like a lot, like you and I. In fact, they can feel so much they can begin to reflect upon themselves and then thereby sort of be self-conscious, which uh, uh, you know creatures with smaller brains probably don't have. Like a mouse, there isn't really too much evidence that the mouse knows it knows something. But the theory also says, well, maybe even simple, simpler systems that don't even have a nervous system, right? P potentially plants, potentially single cells, because even a single cell has vast complexity that we've never managed to model on a computer uh, using computer simulation, because these complexities sort of exceeds anything we can model today. So it may well also feel an itsy-bitsy bit like to be a little amoeba or a little bacteria. Ah, interesting. Well, David, we have just a couple of seconds left. I understand you and Christoph have entered a, a new bet. Do you hope to win again? Yeah, with the next bet, another 25 years, Christoph bet that we'll have discovered the neural correlates of consciousness by 2048. And I'm still taking the no side. I think we'll get there eventually. That's still optimistic, but I would love it if I'm proved wrong. If we'd find those neural correlates of consciousness, fantastic. I still think I'm on the winning side, but let's see. <laughs> well, David Chalmers is at New York University and Christoph Koch is at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. Thank you both so very much. And I also must thank uh, Per Snaprud, neuroscience editor at the Swedish science magazine Forskning and Framsteg for use of uh, sound from your original bet. This is On Point. Mm -hmm.